20 years ago tomorrow was a dark day in America's history, indeed, I think in world history, September 11th, 2001. Um, I think all of us will remember where we were when we heard what happened in New York City, in Washington, D.C. Um, I think all of us will remember, at least uh, most of us in America, the anger that we felt. And in a lot of cases, the helplessness and the fear. Reflecting on it 20 years after the fact, it's a day that's really changed the country, changed the world, changed um, our policies in so many different areas of life and just how people think about government, how they, what they want from their government, and especially uh, how America sees itself in the world. So at the Salem Center, uh, we're going to have a couple of events, uh, this panel and a episode of our podcast, Free Lunch, reflecting on the impact of 9-11 over the past 20 years. And in this panel in particular, we're going to talk about uh, America's foreign policy response. It's a um, interesting time, a sad time to be doing that. Uh, we're, we're pulling out of Afghanistan now after 20 years in Afghanistan. I think um, no one would have their view of um, what should or could have happened there uh, and what the right policies are. I think no one's happy with what's going on in the country now. Um, uh, except possibly the Taliban leaders and their supporters. So uh, it's, a, it's an interesting time to be reflecting on American foreign policy and how we responded to this attack. We've assembled three uh, panelists to discuss it with us, and we're going to hear from each of them. Uh, Peter Brooks of the Heritage Foundation, Alan Giorno of the Ayn Rand Institute, uh, and Justin Logan of Cato. Uh, and I'm going to begin by asking each of them to uh, comment just on their overview of like the essence of uh, how did America respond? Uh, what have been the results? What's the big picture? What's the forest of which all the news items we may have heard and all the particular op-eds and all the particular incidences and opinions uh, are are the trees? And uh, after we've heard from, from each of our panelists, we'll kind of convene for a discussion uh, among the three of them. I may ask some questions or they'll pose questions to one another. And we'll take questions uh, from you in the audience uh, via the Zoom Q&A feature for those of you who are watching in Zoom. Or if you want to put a question in YouTube, um, it'll be relayed to me. Uh, I can see the, the, uh, the Zoom Q&A, but not the YouTube. But we have people outside who are monitoring it and relaying the information. Um, Peter uh, should be online in a few minutes. He's uh, having some connection issues. So uh, let's start with Alan. Um, Alan, what's your big picture? Well, thanks for having me on this panel, Greg. I think it is an important topic. It's a grim topic, but an important one for us to spend time reflecting on. I would say that people have given a lot of attention to what's happened in Afghanistan. In, in the spirit of your question of what is the big picture, what is the forest? I think the shameful situation we see in Afghanistan, the fiasco of the withdrawal, the many aspects of it that could be commented on. I think it's a microcosm of the bigger story, which is that America in the 20 years since 9-11 has really failed to respond to the threat that we faced that day on 9-11 and to fundamentally fail to understand what we're facing. And I think that is the story here, is that it's a failure to really understand and confront the nature of the threat we faced. Now, a lot of people at the time, and I'm sure this will come up in our conversation today, thought the problem was existential, that we're facing an existential threat. I don't think that was true uh, at the time in 2001. 
But as a consequence of the way we approached our response in foreign policy in the last 20 years, we haven't made the problem an existential one yet, but it's certainly worse than it, than it needs to be. And it's certainly not gone away. So instead of having defeated the threat or eliminated it or reduced it to something negligible the way we would want to as a result of a response, we've actually made it worse. We've made it stronger. And I think the epitome of this is the fact that as many people have commented, it's, it's worse than ironic that Afghanistan now is back in the hands of the very same people, same, same movement that put it uh, in uh, such dire straits and, and was home to Al-Qaeda back in 2001. It, it's, it's grim and it puts the whole loss of life, the, the trillions of dollars invested, it shows that I think that all of that has been a colossal uh, disaster. I mean, it's really it's a foreign policy disaster. So I just want to make two two broad points to uh, illustrate my my perspective. One is the diagnosis, and one is about the consequences. So I think the diagnosis I offer, and I think this is hopefully it's going to contrast with some of the other speakers we have today, is that I think the essential issue is that the United States foreign policy, and by this I include both the four administrations we've had since 9-11 and the establishment that speaks about and comments about foreign policy, including the media, which went along for many of these decisions. The essential issue is we've evaded or we've refused to recognize what is the enemy? What is the Islamist movement? And specifically that it is a movement and that it's ideas driven, that it's an ideological phenomenon. And I think of it as a, an ideological movement rooted in Islam, but distinguishable from Islam. And I think it's important to make that distinction. We, we failed to do that. I think the many ways we can illustrate that with the George W. Bush administration going out of its way to try to distance the, the enemy from Islam, trying to present Islam as a religion that was hijacked. Now, it, there's many arguments to be had about the relationship between this movement and Islam. But I think it's important to recognize that it is rooted in these same ideas and that that's central to understanding both how it arose, how it became prominent and what its goals are. So I regard that as failure number one. And the consequence of this is the Bush administration shutting its eyes to this problem meant that key aspects of what you would want to do were not done. So part of what you would want to do is to understand, okay, this is what they're after. They're after not simply terrorizing us, which is a means but a certain goal, which is to subjugate people under this totalitarian vision of their interpretation of Islam, wherever they can do it, and they want to inflict harm on other countries because they regard us as infidels, trespassing on holy lands, and so forth. But it's, it's a narrative saturated with religious thinking and religious ideas and values. And you would have to recognize as well, which I think was a story in the 20 years before 9-11, that this movement was growing in popularity. It was a cultural force in the Middle East. And it had state sponsorship in various relationships. Not all of them were like Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. That was one kind of state relationship. And those kinds of relationship would trace back to regimes that we, not, we, did, we didn't do anything about and that we should have confronted, namely Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Iran, I think is very central and salient here. And so there's discussions to have about the wars we did pursue in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think in effect, they were not the priorities, not the things we should have been doing. 
So we didn't pursue this phenomenon as a movement. We didn't pursue its actual prominent state sponsors. And one of the consequences of this is that the we didn't take the actions needed to really eliminate this threat. And if you understand one consequence of understanding it as an ideological phenomenon is to know that the way to stop this threat from becoming worse and from eliminating it is to teach the people who pursue this view that their cause is lost, that their goal is unachievable, and that in effect you need to demoralize them and to demoralize their leadership and all those who stand in the position that claim to be standard bearers for this idea, and particularly the, the, move, the, the movement sponsors and, and inspirations, the regimes that I think are central to this phenomenon. We didn't do that. I think the, there was re, no real attention. In fact, Saudi Arabia was and remains uh, widely seen as an ally to the United States, despite many ways in which it is harmful to us and was contributing to this movement. Pakistan, there was a really sordid story about how the Bush administration tried to turn a Pakistan into an ally. I don't think that went anywhere close to what it was supposed to do. It was a case of Pakistan taking American aid and not really doing what it promised to do in combating Islamists. There's many sordid aspects to that story. But I think the, the consequence here is that we didn't pursue the kind of goal that would lead the enemy or this movement to feel like its goal is unachievable. Instead, what actually happened by 2014, when Iraq was obviously a disaster, Afghanistan was a no-win war that was created by US policy. By 2014, what we see is the emergence of a splinter group from Al-Qaeda known as Islamic State. They take over a massive tract of territory. They create a totalitarian regime. And if, if you want an indicator of how low we had gotten to by 2014 and where we were, it's that this movement was galvanizing people. People were flocking to live and fight for the Islamic State by the tens of thousands, including people, a minority, but a significant minority, from countries where there is freedom, there is economic opportunity, from countries like the United Kingdom and France and Belgium and Australia. That is a significant cultural marker that 50, what is it, 13 years after 9-11, this movement is able to attract so many followers Whatever you think of them, whatever you think of the motivation, it's a fact that once Islamic State declared a caliphate, it became a clarion call for so many people to come and fight for it. So to me, that's a marker of how this movement was far from demoralized or defeated, but in fact, galvanized. I want to make one final point in tracing out some consequences. I'm sure there's many more we can talk about, but one is that a lot of these failures were compounding failures. They, they built upon each other, mistake upon mistake. So I, I have very dim views about the Bush administration's approach to Iraq and the surge and all the ways in which we define success down. And then the, the Obama administration's approach, which I think compounded the fails. But it, we can get to that in, in the conversation. But I want to make one point that I think is an unseen problem uh, or an underappreciated problem. And this is, you know, to borrow from um, Frederick Bastiat, this whole phenomenon, the whole idea that there are things and costs that we don't appreciate because we don't see them, they're not obvious. And that is the cost to us who live in the West, not from the continual threat of terrorist attacks, which I can't put a number on, but it, it's still a thing that might happen. And we can't know when that happens. And not even the fact that Al-Qaeda is still around or that the Taliban are back in power. All those things are significant. We need to address those and recognize them. But we live in a time now, 20 years after 9-11, there is a climate, particularly in Europe, but also in North America, where it's, it's become 
uh, a risk to one's life and reputation to speak about Islam as having critically, and particularly to talk about it and ridicule it, which I think should be something that we should be able to do about any religion or any set of ideas. And here I'm talking about the legacy of the Danish cartoons crisis, which erupted in 2005, 2006. And we can talk about what that was about. That was a test of how bad is the self-censorship in Europe. And it turns out it's really bad. And it turns out that if you publish cartoons in a newspaper in Denmark, that can lead to a global eruption of violence and boycotts and real loss of life. And then fast forwarding to 2015, to the massacre of the journalists of Charlie Hebdo in Paris. I think that's another marker in a trend there are many other markers, but this is a significant marker where they were put to death by self-defined jihadists for the so-called crime of blaspheming or insulting the religion of Islam. Now, this, you might say, what does this have to do with 9-11? These people are not terrorists like the ones who flew planes into buildings. No, they're not. But they are pursuing the same goals, the same ends, even if their means are different. And their, their goal, you can see, is directly related, which is they want people to bow to their religious view that they think Islam should govern not just where they have territory they control, but everywhere. And the logic of that is, if you think this is the one true faith, it, why not? Why should it not uh, prevail everywhere? And so the idea of imposing these Islamic views about blasphemy within the West, that is a, of a piece with the whole conception of what the Islamic totalitarian movement is about, which is imposing their religiously based ideology on people everywhere to the extent they can. So to me, this is a really important unseen cost, which is where our freedom of speech has been diminished to the point where there is such a thing as the jihadist veto and people are, are unwilling to talk about it. Um, I mean, this is before the so-called cancel culture erupted here on, on different issues, but it's, it's literally a case that if you have said things in Europe and in parts of America, you face death threats. You have to live in police protection. And to me, this is a way in which whatever else happens on the battlefield, whatever happens in Afghanistan or in Iraq or Libya, any other of these places, we, we have, this is a sign that the Islamist movement has gained some purchase towards its goals. It's diminished our freedom and it's a, it's a significant freedom, the freedom of speech such that you have Yale University Press is afraid to publish a scholarly book about the Danish cartoons crisis with the book, with the cartoons in it because of the risk of, of harm to the people involved. And that is a really sad marker that we're now 20 years into an effort to respond to this threat. And we're not only seeing the Taliban resume their control of Afghanistan, we're also seeing parts of the free world succumbing to the fear that some uh, fighters in, in league with this whole conception of what this crazy vision is, crazy is not the right word for it, imposing their views with, at the threat of a gun or a knife so that you cannot criticize, you cannot speak about this. This is a, a taboo topic uh, where if you want to do a documentary about this, you have to crowdfund it. And then the people who crowdfund the documentary remove their name from the credit line because they're afraid of reprisals. That's an actual example of what happened. So th there is this diminishing freedom of speech that I think is an unseen cost of the disastrous foreign policy 9-11 because when the Danish cartoons crisis erupted, we appeased that. 
And when Charlie Hebdo attacks happened, nobody spoke out for the principle of freedom of speech. And I regard that as of a piece with evading the nature of the threat we faced in 9-11. So to me, it's, that's the essential, there are significant consequences that have followed from it. And some of them, as I've described, are unseen and we need to really appreciate them. Thank you. Um, that was Alain Giorno of the Ayn Rand Institute giving his uh, big picture summary of the last 20 years of American foreign policy after 9-11 and its results. Let's turn to um, Justin Logan now of Cato. Um, same question. Great. Um, thanks very much uh, to you, Greg, for inviting me to participate. Um, thanks to everyone for being here and to the Selim Center for, for including me. Um, I'll open with a sort of idiosyncratic personal note. Uh, I worked in this business for over a decade, in, you know, U.S. national security from 2004 to 2015, burned out, opened a wine bar, sold it, came back. And uh, now I have this sort of weird benefit of being able to look back on this era like a grandparent who hasn't seen its grandchild since before COVID. It's so much bigger. It has glasses now. Your hair is longer. Uh, so I have the, the benefit of some distance, or what I hope is the benefit of some distance. Um, I want to make three main points about this era and any effort to sort of synopsize 20 years of U.S. foreign policy is going to miss some important things. Um, so I look forward to, you know, filling in the gaps uh, in the discussion that ensues. The first main point that I want to make is that the broad arc of policies that we summarize is the global war on terrorism were disastrous and unnecessary for U.S. national security uh, and for the countries in which we started the wars. Um, the second point that I want to make is that um, a big reason that that happened is that we dramatically overestimated the threat posed to the United States by Islamist fundamentalism or radical Islamism or whatever the term uh, one cares to use. And if I don't run out of time doing that, um, I'll conclude with a third point, which is that the global war on terror was very corrosive to Republican Madisonian institutions and what we used to think of as Republican virtue, the sort of uh, a government that we could trust, a government that wouldn't lie to us, et cetera, et cetera. So to begin with, the wars. Um, I think to, to start, it's important to point out that the government didn't respond to the 9-11 attacks by carefully assessing uh, where they came from, why they came from that place, and what could be done uh, to punish, deter, and just kill the individuals who had perpetrated the attacks. Rather, they seized the moment to do a number of things that they had wanted to do before the attacks. So we have Donald Rumsfeld's uh, handwritten notes from the afternoon of September 11th, uh, where he writes in shorthand, hard to get good case, need to move swiftly, near-term target needs, go massive, sweep it all up, things related and not. Um, Donald Rumsfeld was first recorded as considering Iraq a target on September the 11th itself, his deputy, Paul Wolfowitz, on September the 15th, um, and President Bush asked Secretary Rumsfeld for war plans on November 21st, 2001. Um, so they really had a preset view of the things that they wanted to do, and those just slot in to the opening that was created by the September 11th attacks. Another point that ties to Afghanistan that's important to point out is that both Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz 
were very wary of uh, committing deeply to war in Afghanistan for the simple fact of the shortage of aim points. There just wasn't a lot to shoot at in Afghanistan. Both individuals recognized that this was an extremely underdeveloped country. There wasn't a lot of infrastructure. Um, and as a consequence, there wasn't a lot that could be done in terms of the global war on terrorism in Afghanistan. Now, this was used as a reason to do Iraq, right, because there wasn't enough to do in Afghanistan. But it really didn't seem to permeate their thinking about the limits of what could be produced in Afghanistan. The mission in Afghanistan sort of limped along as the political centerpiece of the global war on terrorism, the war in Iraq, began. As we now know, uh, thanks to the Brown University uh, uh, project on the costs of war, the wars killed about a million people, give or take. They cost about $8 trillion, although the meter is still running. And of course, among that million people is thousands of Americans. And really, I think the number would be better represented as tens of thousands of Americans. One thing that's important to point out is that um, the casualties, that is to say the killed in action numbers for Afghanistan and Iraq are much, much lower than they were in Vietnam. And this is something for obvious reasons to be thankful for. Um, but there are two costs to this. Um, the reason that the casualty numbers are so much lower is that the United States has simply gotten much better at field medicine. It, it can save lives on the battlefield to a degree that it couldn't during the Vietnam War. Again, this is a very important uh, plus to the way we do war today as opposed to the way we did war 50 years ago. But there are two consequences of this. Number one is that while the killed in action numbers are depressed, the injuries, the casualties that are not killed in action include a lot of people uh, whose quality of life has been severely diminished. So you have uh, triple and quadruple amputees who would have died in Vietnam, but were recorded as injuries uh, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so you have a number of people who have who would have been killed in action who are now just sort of coded as wounded. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. And the other thing to keep in mind is that these improvements in field medicine are very expensive. So to the extent that we save lives for those who are injured on the battlefield, the pecuniary cost of the wars goes up uh, insignificant numbers. Um, so I think that's the sort of nutshell thumbnail sketch uh, summation of the wars themselves. And I've noticed a recurring argument um, among people who are enthusiasts for the global war on terrorism, who say, look, there, there, there was no nine, there was no follow on attack to September the 11th. So that has to be counted in the positive column for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And this is an interesting argument to me. My colleague John Mueller has done a comprehensive assessment of all the anti-American terrorist attacks and terrorist attack attempts that have been recorded against the United States September the 11th. He has a 1,086 page compendium detailing every one of these attacks and none of them resembles in any form or fashion uh, anything remotely of the scale of the September 11th attacks. And I would point out that the government uh, that would have uh, interdicted such an attempt has very powerful incentives to show its work on what it did and to congratulate itself. And the fact that we have not heard uh, self-congratulation and we have not seen the work done uh, suggests to us that there was no 9-11 part two in the offing.
That moves to the second point, which is that we overstated the threat to the United States posed by international terrorism. I mentioned before that I left this business and went into the restaurant business for a few years. And one of the merits or demerits of that, I guess you could say, is that I, I developed a greater sense for things like profit and loss, things like sales projections, uh, things like investments. And I know that the Salem Center has a lot of econometrically inclined people and people who deal in finance and investment. Um, so I think it's useful to think about our assessments of the risk from terrorism with an eye to that frame of mind. Um, and I would ask the question, I guess, is anybody here still long terrorism? Do we hold the same views about the risk posed to the United States by radical Islamic terrorism, or again, whatever one cares to call it, that we did in the fall and winter of 2001-2002? I think we probably don't. And I think we probably didn't accurately assess the risk posed to the United States by terrorism in those days for understandable reasons. But with the benefit of two decades of hindsight, we can look back and see that our fears of having to duct tape ourselves into our homes as a consequence of a sarin gas attack, the idea that the anthrax attacks that were perpetrated against the Capitol would become a fact of daily life, um, suggests to me that our risk portfolios need updating that we indeed uh, overstated uh, the military and security threat posed by radical Islamic terrorism. And I would just pose this problem. I, as a good Irish Catholic, uh, am not a a member of uh, Islam, but it is worth noting that almost a quarter of the world's population subscribes to one flavor or the other of the Islamic faith. This is about 2 billion people. If one one thousandth of one percent of them were amenable to terrorism or to the idea that the United States should be attacked for this or that reason, we'd be looking at 20 million people who were inclined to terrorism. And I would suggest that over the course of 20 years, we would have seen a tremendous amount of damage perpetrated by these people. There are millions of Muslims in the United States, and while there have been horrific attacks um, using firearms, for example, um, there really hasn't been the sort of targeted, directed, uh, unified effort that uh, characterized the 9-11 attacks. And I think 20 years later, we should be able to say that we may have gotten the overall risk assessment wrong. Excuse me for shaking my camera. Um, In conclusion, I want to just mention the corrosion of Republican virtues and Republican institutions um, that were caused by the global war on terrorism. Um, I began wanting to make the point about how much lying has permeated uh, the global war on terrorism and went down a rabbit hole where I found there was just lying upon lying upon lying upon lying. Um, We now know that the government began illegally collecting data on hundreds of millions of Americans' telecommunications and then lied to Congress when they were caught in the act. Uh, James Clapper was asked directly, and I'll quote here, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? This is a perfectly discreet question. It was clear as a bell, and Clapper responded, no, sir, not wittingly. 
he got away with it. And we are now uh, treated to Clapper's pronunciations on political developments on MSNBC. Lying to Congress should be bear some consequences, I would suggest, in a democratic republic. We know that the CIA tortured people. And when Congress began investigating torture, the CIA began spying on Congress in contravention of the law. Asked about this, John Brennan lied on television about having surveilled congressional inquiries into the torture report. And I would conclude with the Afghanistan uh, uh, mission close in the rearview mirror that just this month, General Mark Milley, who, of course, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was asked what went wrong with the Afghan mission. He sort of shrugged and said, maybe those forces were not designed appropriately for the type of mission without pointing out that General Milley had been one of the individuals who was responsible for designing the forces appropriately for the type of mission in which they would find themselves. So I think there's been an overstatement of the threat posed by terrorism, disastrous, expensive wars perpetrated as a consequence of that overstatement, and an utter failure of anyone to take responsibility uh, for the ruin left behind them. And I think this is a tragic chapter in American history that we would do well to turn the page on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that was Justin Loken of Cato. I'm saying your names afterwards, like on radio, because this will be uh, <laughs> sometimes it's a podcast. I might not see your, uh, your captions. And I wanna now uh, turn to Peter Brooks of the Heritage Foundation to give us your overview, the big picture of American foreign policy since 9-11 and its consequences. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm late. Uh, I didn't didn't actually have a Zoom account. I'm probably the only one in my uh, 12-year-old, my 11-year-old was able to help me rectify that quickly. Luckily, he was home from school. But most times I haven't had to have it. I just kind of uh, just kind of signed in. So I'm making up by uh, coming in late uh, by leaving early, as I mentioned, Greg. I apologize, but I have to uh, join, have a couple of times this evening, one in the five o'clock hour with Fox Business, to talk about 9/11, and uh, they were particularly interested in the fact that I was at the Pentagon on 9/11. Uh, it's uh, different from uh, from Justin and Elon, I, I suppose. I don't I don't know that. And um, I was, although my responsibilities there were for the Asian Pacific region, not not the Middle East uh, or Afghanistan, South Asia, uh, it, it has had a tremendous effect on my on my thinking. Uh, and I, I, I my, in my opening remarks, I didn't. Uh, it appeared as Elon and Justin did to speak, speak a lot about the global terror. I had other issues as as well. So let me let me talk a little bit uh, a little bit about that. Um, I think um, I'm reminded as I was thinking about this, and I looked at the question, I think a little bit differently than the other two um, uh, in, the, in an anecdote that involves Dean Acheson, who most people know is, was uh, Harry Truman's secretary of state um, at a very important time in American, in American history. Um, he was dealing with um, you know, the, the end, beginning of the Cold War, the end of World War II, rebuilding of Japan, rebuilding of Germany, uh, the People's Republic of China, the New People's Republic of China at that uh, at that time, uh, the Soviet Union, the rise of the Soviet Union, and uh, interestingly, he is. I'm not sure the story might be apocryphal, but it's a great story regardless. Atchison was asked by a reporter and said, "Mr. Secretary, how do you define foreign policy?" Um, and he thought about it for a minute and turned to the reporter and he said, uh, "Foreign policy is just one darn thing after another." And I think that's 
says a lot. And I think that the last 20 years has been a, uh, an important, uh, has been a challenge uh, to deal with uncertainty. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of uncertainty, um, especially, you know, starting with starting with 9-11 and preceding that. I don't think it was just it's just after 9-11. Um, and of course, the, there was the global war on terror. Um, I, you know, I, I, you know Al Qaeda, as bad as it was, I don't think that anybody I, I didn't hear all of Elon's uh, talk, but uh, nobody mentioned ISIS. Um, you know, ISIS was the largest, richest terrorist army ever. We saw an incredible flow of foreign fighters from around the world. I, I remember lecturing on this at one time, and I'm a little dated now because I've turned a bit away from terrorism and uh, a bit of a globalist in my, in my position. Um, you know, from 90 different countries, we saw foreign fighters uh, move to Iraq and Syria, mostly Syria, um, where they were setting up a caliphate and um, uh, were involved in unbelievable atrocities. Um, you know all of them. I won't go, I won't go into them. Um, which was a, a you know a tremendous threat um, not only within uh, Iraq and Syria but beyond and um, there are a number of, of terrorist attacks that took place the, around the world um, that were related to them uh, and if they had not been stopped I don't know where it would have been we also made tremendous gains against Al Qaeda now I, I do have concerns about our policy in Afghanistan I would I would not have advocated if the president had asked me and he didn't. Uh, would not have advocated a, a full withdrawal. Uh, I, I think that a, a small force there to help uh, steal the Afghan security forces uh, with intelligence and perhaps air cover would have been important to uh, keep Al Qaeda uh, and ISIS, ISIS K, as you know, ISIS Khorasan Province. Uh, you know, uh, keep after keep after them. I'm worried about Al uh, Afghanistan once again becoming a safe haven for intertransnational terrorism. So I, I'm concerned about that. But I think. There were tremendous challenges, and I think after a number of years that we had uh, had some success. And um, you know, remember this: this the challenge of terrorism was not just something that happened in the Middle East or in Europe or in the United States. It was Southeast Asia. I don't know if people remember Islam Islamia, uh, Jamal Islamia uh, in Indonesia, um, Al Qaeda, and well, there's still there's still challenges uh, in in the Philippines uh, today. Uh, there were a number of number of plots. I mean, in 2006, if people forget or. There was, um, you know, the reason we can't take liquid still on the aircraft is that there was a major plot to take down aircraft flying from, uh, flying from the UK to the United States. So there have been, there have been significant, you know, significant challenges uh, to, to everybody. And there are challenges beyond the global war on terror. Um, we, can, we can criticize, we can certainly learn lessons along, along the way, and we should uh, do the best that we can in, in, in that way. Um, but there's the other challenges too that have, that have come about. Um, I, you know, we've seen the, the advent of uh, great power competition uh, that involves um, Russia and, and China. Uh, in my opinion, China, you know, plans to would like to replace the United States as a preeminent power in the Pacific, and I think globally, uh, and they're making great efforts to do that. They're becoming increasingly insertive. Uh, there's concerns about the South China Sea, uh, which the Chinese consider to be a Chinese lake uh, today, one million miles of, of uh, open ocean. Uh, that Chinese consider to be sovereign, indisputable, I think I'm quoting here, indisputable Chinese sovereign territory. Uh, you know, there are concerns about that when you have $3 trillion worth of uh, trade that goes through it, uh, goes through it every year. Uh, the military buildup. Uh, I don't know, I've written a couple articles recently uh, about the fact about the Chinese ICBM buildup, uh, the building of uh, und undisclosed uh, ICBM silos that could put them as a near peer or peer of the United States uh, in ICBMs. 
that's that's significant, especially since China won't involve itself in, in arms control. Russia, uh, you know, Putin has been a challenge for, for quite some time. Um, it's it's um, you know, I, I'm, I often remind audiences of what Putin said in 2005. He's been around that long in power, either as president, the once and future president, I sometimes refer to him as. I think he took a spin as, uh, as as vice president and then came back. And I think he's, he's going to be around for a while, assuming his health, his health stays. Um, you know, he talked about, he said, the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century was the fall of the Soviet Union. Now, that, that didn't make my list as the greatest geopolitical tragedy, but it gives you an, an idea of the insights and the views of people inside the Kremlin, certainly certainly uh, Putin. And he's, he's repeated that since then. I can't tell you exactly where and when, but I have seen it pop up again um, that people that people note that. So China, I mean, Russia is resurgent. There's no question about it. Um, it didn't like the way that the Cold War ended, and it sees the United States as a as a nemesis, certainly, unfortunately, and NATO as a as a threat, uh, which I think is which I think is incorrect. Um, I don't know if my colleagues mentioned you know Iran or North Korea, uh, other major uncertainties that we're you know that we're dealing with, especially because of, I I see them as rogue states especially because of their pursuit of, of nuclear weapons. Obviously, North Korea is a nuclear, is a nuclear weapon state. Uh, Iran, I believe it has aspirations to become one. I'm very concerned about uh, what, it's, what, it's, what it's doing now. And I think both of them have the opportunities to be large forces for instability in, in both of their regions. And you know, if, you look at, if you look at where North Korea is uh, and the uh, challenges it would, it would provide if it were to um, invade or attack South Korea. I mean, look at the look at the economies out there: Japan, Taiwan, China, uh, South Korea. I mean, some of the largest economies in, in the world, and the effect it would have uh, the reverberations across the across the globe if there were if there were conflict there. And of course, North Korea is is, is very quiet about itself. I mean, we're all wondering why Kim Jong Un looks so good these days. Lost a few pounds, it appears. Uh, whether he has a health problem or he's he's uh, taken up uh, jogging, we don't know. Uh, but there are big questions about any sort of a succession in, uh, in North Korea uh, and their intentions. It's always a, a huge challenge for the United States and, and others. And of course, you know, if there were to be something on the Korean Peninsula, what role would China play? Uh, you have to look, you, all you have to do is look back to 1950 uh, and the uh, 200,000 Chinese volunteers who crossed the border uh, in support of North Korea after the Incheon invasion. Uh, and what we and what uh, where things are. In fact, we don't even have a peace treaty. We have an armistice on there. And with Iran, I mean, Iran is a, a Shia Persian country and a Sunni Islam, uh, uh, Islam uh, Sunni Arab neighborhood. Um, it, uh, it has uh, its grievances with its with its neighbors. Um, it wants to be the most. My view is the most powerful Muslim state in the in the Middle East and in the world. Uh, certainly leading the, the Shia around the. world. Um, and um, it's my I have concerns about its efforts in the Middle East, and of course it's a, of course it's nuclear, it's nuclear situation. So there are there are huge there are huge challenges, and I think uh, both Republican and Democratic administrations. It's easy to look back. I, my view is look, uh, it's easy to look back and armchair quarterback this and criticize people for what they did. Uh, but I think you know just like with the with the pandemic we're dealing with. I mean, that's another uncertainty, right? There's these wild cards out there. I mean, you know, I think, you know, I think in fairness that people have done the best they could. They, history will judge them, right? History will judge them and how well they did. But uh, a lot of these problems, these challenges, whether you're talking about the, what I we used, we used to call the four plus one, you know, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran plus terrorism, uh, like the, the pandemic, which is obviously having international repercussions, not only here in the United States, uh, but in the world, I mean, you know, they're talking about, uh, you know, 
trade. They're talking about supply chains, which I think people in, uh, at the business school will understand blockchain and all these things I don't really understand. Uh, but people are talking about it because of because of COVID. People are you know making their best best efforts um, in, in terms of this. And you know the one thing I would think under I would ask others to understand is that uh, makers uh, don't have a lot of time to study these things, and they're often dealing in uncharted waters. And one of those events, um, the pandemic is one of certainly one of those events. Uh, they, they make things extremely extremely difficult. Uh, have to remember that uh, I think one of the other very important things to remember in the Pentagon and when I was in the military is that the enemy gets a vote, or the opposition gets a vote. Um, and that's true in international diplomacy, that's true in economics, that's true in security issues. Um, so despite your desires to influence things in the direction you'd like, it doesn't always work out that way. So I'm happy to get in, into any of these other things, and I apologize, I'm going to have to uh, head out uh, in a bit, but uh, I'm, I'm, uh, thank you very much for the invitation, and I apologize for lack of <laughs> lack of IT uh, capabilities. But thankfully, my 11 year old was home from school and helped Dad out once again. Uh, thank you. L yeah, let me pose some questions to you first, and I'll be interested to hear okay. the other panelists do because I know you have the, the least time. Um, so, if I'm understanding the the kind of overall um, top headline point about about foreign policy you ought to make is that it's in effect a dangerous and uncertain world in a lot of respects and we're having to react our policymakers are having to react um in what time they have to surprising events and so it's easy to uh sit in an ivory tower and criticize them but it's um the real world out there is difficult and tricky and complicated and you're uh, describing a lot of the ways in which it is are there um any principles you think, though, are especially important for um, foreign policy, um, you know, for policymakers to bear in mind? Or what would you say are the top one or two principles that they would need to bear in mind to navigate this uncertainty as best as is possible? And do you think they were born in mind well uh, in the response to 9-11? Uh, that's a challenging question. I really, can I get back to you on that? Maybe write a research paper or something? <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 a good question. I, I um, that's a very good that's a very good question. I think one of the things I said is that the, you know the enemy gets a vote, or your opposition, your whoever your adversary uh, gets a vote on on these sort of things. The other thing I, I try to remind people is that um, you know policymaking is not um, foreign policy, international relations is not engineering. Uh, it's not accounting. Uh, you know, like for instance, this this house I'm sitting in. Uh, you know, if the, the forces uh, didn't equal zero, this house would be moving in one direction or the other. Okay, they happen to equal zero because it was engineered correctly. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not true in foreign policy. Okay, uh, two plus two equals five. Two plus two equals seven. Uh, and there are real there are real uh, challenges there. Uh, the, other, the other thing I would say is that, and I would love that this is a great question. I would love to give it uh, more thought, and I'm sure that Elon and Justin probably. Are, Hopefully, scribbling good things down now to educate your, educate your educate your audience. But the other thing is, is that um, you know, as a former policymaker myself, and like I've been in the think tank world for a long time now, but as a Capitol Hill staffer and uh, as a as a senior Pentagon official, um, policy is hard, and implementation is even harder. So anything you do and you put down on paper, uh, this is um, it, it, it's not always easy. You have plans based on your understanding of, of history and culture and other things. Uh, 
And um, you try to put those things into motion and they don't always end up. I mean, you had a plan, Greg, you had a plan for today, <laughs> right? You had a plan for today. Yeah. And, and when you look back tonight, before you turn out the light, it won't look anything like you thought it would be. You thought Peter Brooks would be on time. Something interesting to say. And um, you were you were disappointed. I well, no, 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 no. I understand. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, I get up in the morning and I, you know, usually if we be going to the office, I would leave with our, our son to take him to school at 745 and hope we'd be in certain places at certain times. And we know with DC traffic, that's probably not going to happen. Okay. It's like everybody. So has one, a... Yeah. You got a plan, but implementing that plan is just, is just hard. Another thing I would say about uh, international relations is it's incredibly difficult to work across cultures, to understand across cultures. I mean, I can't even, you know, my wife says she can't even understand me and we've been married for 20 years, right? So, I mean, somebody she sees every day, imagine trying to do this across cultures uh, outside of the United States. I mean, look at the politics in the United States, right? So this is tough. The point here is, is that this is tough stuff. I think a business community, a business school would certainly understand the challenges that you face, dynamics of business, dynamics of international affairs, um, I think, you know, are, you know, critically important. So I'll, I'll just stop there. I like I didn't have anything right off the top of my head, but um, that's uh, that's what I came up with. <laughs> Let me just ask Alan and Justin, do either of you have things you'd in particularly like to ask uh, Pete while he's with us? Alon, do you care to, to <laughs> take anything? Or that would be interesting to hear your 9/11 story, Pete. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I'll try to be quick, quick about it. But thank you very much. I was, uh, I was at the Pentagon, and I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Asia Pacific, and I was getting ready to uh, make my first trip overseas. Uh, I'm going to Hawaii to Pacific Command, which is now Indo-Pac, but uh, was Pacific Command at the time, and Japan and Korea. Um, you know, I, I uh, headed out for the headed out for the airport. I, I picked a flight that was um, through San Francisco and United Airlines on the morning of September 11th. Uh, headed out the door, and I remember it being a beautiful like we're having in Washington today. You know, kind of cool, fall-like, sunny. Uh, it was just a great day. Got out there. Got on the plane, no problems. It was lightly, uh, very few people, not like today. You know, the planes are so busy today. Uh, got in there and uh, we taxied. And I think I fell asleep, quite frankly. You know, working working in the Pentagon can require long hours. And I know I was up late the night before and up early to get to the airport. I drove myself and I fell asleep and I woke up and I realized we hadn't moved in a while. And I was worried about missing my flight onto, uh, onto Hawaii. We didn't. We moved. Didn't move from that spot, and we were actually sent back to the um, actually sent back to the terminal at Dulles. Uh, and as I was walking um, through um, the um, airport, Dulles isn't what it used to be. I don't know if you've been through Dulles. Dulles is much more, much fancier now with lots of places. But then it usually had a couple of bars, and they usually weren't open for breakfast. And but the televisions had started to come on in some of these places, and I saw that the, the two uh, planes had hit the twin towers in New York. Um, went back to the, the baggage area and they actually are bagged, my bag popped out. But while I was there, I met some friends and probably some people that you know uh, that worked in foreign policy that I had known. And they said the Pentagon had been hit. 
So I grabbed my bag and I headed for the car and couldn't contact anybody at all. But when I got home to my house, uh, one of the messages other than from, you know, from a lot of other wonderful people um, was, um, uh, you know, from friends wondering about me uh, was uh, a message to return to the Pentagon. Um, I had been an acting assistant secretary at the time. I, I was, our assistant secretary was overseas. And so grabbed a few things and headed up 395, which some people may know is the main corridor up to the Pentagon from Northern Virginia. And, um, and it was completely empty, which made it really eerie. And then I could see the smoke at the Pentagon. Um, so I returned to the Pentagon and helped uh, replace, uh, to respond to the, the policy issues that we were having. But even more interesting, you know, I was angry at the fact that our country had been attacked, my city had been attacked, my place of work had been attacked. Uh, but the other interesting part of it was is that um, a few weeks before I took my trip, my assistant came in to me and offered me two flights. Uh, one was an American Airlines flight from Dulles to Los Angeles, and the other was this uh, United flight from Dulles to San Francisco. The, the uh, United flight was a little bit later in the morning, uh, not much, about a half hour, I think, but when you work for uh, folks like Don Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz, uh, <laughs> an extra half hour is a lot of time to yourself. And I was gonna be gone for a week or so and I wanted to be home a little bit longer. Um, the other flight that I decided not to take was the one that flew into the Pentagon. Um, so, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, and so it had a tremendous, had a tremendous uh, uh, impact on me. And, and, and though I was, um, not involved necessarily in, in the response to Afghanistan. I obviously played a supporting role as we used the Pacific um, uh, significantly. So um, I'm lucky to be here. Uh, and um, so I maybe have a little bit different view than, than, some, than some other people, but I think we all remember where we were on that day um, 20 years ago. Um, and um, I, think a lot about, uh, I think a lot about that when these sort of anniversaries uh, come about. So thank you for asking. Thank you. Uh, let me ask um, one of the questions that's come up from, we have two so far that came in from users, uh, that users, fewer, sorry. One's addressed to the whole panel. Um, uh, do members of the panel believe, uh, in their personal opinion, uh, that due to the destabilization of the Middle East caused by the United States, that the United States should accept refugees instead of Europe? So I guess the idea is here, the war on terror created a refugee crisis, or rather our actions in um, Iraq and Afghanistan did, and um, do we have responsibility to um, to the refugees for that? Hmm. Any thoughts from anyone on this? I, I, guess I, I guess I disagree with the premise of the question, um, you know, in terms of the United, United States being responsible, and I, I think that the largest refugee flows were actually out of uh, Syria uh, under ISIS. But I may be wrong on that. I will defer to somebody who perhaps knows, has those numbers, maybe Elon or Justin knows. But, um, you know, obviously the United States has, has done a tremendous amount in terms of humanitarian response. I think it's part of nature. I, I think, you know, the United States, uh, although I disagreed with the Biden administration's policy and their evacuation withdrawal in Iraq, I can't say enough about the American Armed Forces, diplomats and NGOs and others who have tremendous things um, to reach out to help those in Afghanistan. Um, I think the United States has been doing this, you know, for we're, we're one of the, if not the most generous country uh, in the world. Um, so, um, but I think once again, I, I disagree with the premise of it, but I think 
the United International community should stand together to address these challenging humanitarian issues that we face uh, regardless. But like I said, you know, the tremendous amount of, of those uh, refugees, as I recall, into Europe actually came out as a result of ISIS. Do, um, there, I think there are a number of premises behind this question, uh, besides even the one that we caused um, the refugee crisis questions about uh, how refugees and immigration should be dealt with generally. Uh, but does uh, uh, either Alana or Justin, do either of you have anything you want to say to this question? If I, if I were to reframe the question, I would, I would take up some of the premises you're hinting at and one response uh, general, one response specifically. So the general response I would have is I think the, the existing policies and protocols and agreements for refugee resettlement, I think they need to be revisited. I think they're really messed up. I mean, I've studied it a little bit in Europe and I think it's certainly they made very bad policy decisions in mid 2010s. But I think the, the, the general guidelines and, and understandings about how to, how to define a refugee, who should accommodate them and so forth. I think that all needs to be rethought. I, I think it's a mistake to treat them as they're, they're all perfect and we just need to figure out who takes which people. So that's a general comment. I think I, I wanna focus the question on Afghanistan in particular, because I think this is a case where it's much more clear cut than what happened uh, as a result of the Syrian civil war, which I think the many actors involved, Iran, uh, Russia, and many other groups sort of stirred that up. And I think that complicates the, the, the issue, although the US obviously was involved. I think in Afghanistan, you have a clear case of people who risk their lives to assist and help in various ways the US and coalition forces for many years in some cases. And I think there was an understanding at least if not formal agreements with some of them that not only would we help them be safe while they're working with us, uh, us meaning the United States forces, but that there would be a path for them in case something went awry and that they would have a, a place of refuge if hostile forces came after them. And I think it, it's, hard to overstate the risks these people took in a society where there's, I think, understandable, but also not understandable hostility to outsiders, coupled with fear of what the Taliban might do if they come back or other Islamist forces. I, I think it's a tragedy, a completely avoidable tragedy that there are so many people who are, were not able to be processed uh, for special visas to come to the United States to find protection. And I think that is one of the one of the stains of many in the way we the United States handled the situation in Afghanistan and this withdrawal process. Uh, there's similar kind of considerations that I think you could bring up in the context of Iraq. I know someone, I think Greg, you know him too, who worked with American coalition forces in, in Iraq, helping to spot and scout Al-Qaeda operatives. And uh, we don't have to get into his story, but the issue is I think people like that they consciously took a, a risk and I think it's appropriate for us as a, as a, as a nation to give them the, a, a safe place to live if it's not possible for them to reside in their home country. So I, I think that kind of narrowed question, I think is fairly straightforward. Thank you. Um, let me ask another, um, another sort of general uh, question that came up uh, to the panelists in general. Um, Daniel online is asking, do you feel that the situation in the Middle East and the pressure of having control in the area is a result of the geopolitical fight between the U.S., OPEC, and Russia 
uh, uh, over control of oil in the last 20 years. So is this all about oil uh, or was this? And if so, uh, does this continue to be a main pressure point for U.S. foreign policy moving forward? So what was the role of interest in oil in um, all of the, the um, everything that's happened to them, at least in the last 20 years? And what's changed, if anything? I, I, I'll take a quick stab at that because I am going to go. Um, and um, thank you very much for having me. So I think I'm going to kind of leave after this and leave it to Elon and, and Justin to illuminate your audience uh, further on, on these issues. But I, I, you know, you could have said that a long time ago, but not anymore with the American energy renaissance. I mean, I remember people talking about energy independence, and there are still questions about policies on this, obviously. And there's, there's energy experts out there smarter than me on it. But um, whoever would have ever thought that the United States um, could be energy independent? Um, and we had moved certainly in that direction. There's, there are challenges today, and we all know that the oil market is global. It's not. Uh, it's not only. Uh, it's not only one country. You're not an island in that in that sense. And the, the gas prices we're seeing today have things to do with things like hurricanes and travel, uh, as well as the fact that OPEC and Russia are working together to improve their um, improve their bottom line. Right, uh, Russia. This is a, the major uh, export of Russia, and uh, I'm always reminded of John McCain's. <laughs> When he talked about Russia being, a, you know, a country, a, a gas station masking as a country, uh, and uh, it's very important to the Russian economy. There's no question about that. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily true today. Uh, have been challenges in the past, obviously, um, back, you know, can have an effect on the American economy, and it has, um, you know, going back over the years. So, but I, I think that uh, the importance of American energy independence is is uh, critical. Um, to uh, remaining, to having an independent foreign policy and uh, less pressures on that foreign policy. So with that, uh, Greg, thank you so much for having me. Nice to see you, Elon and Justin, and uh, hopefully hopefully see you, uh, hopefully see you soon. Uh, be well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so a big takeaway point there is whatever um, role uh, concerns about oil might have played in the past, it'll be uh, you might think it'll be transfigured now, um, or is being transfigured now by uh, America's having more oil domestically. Um, Alana or Justin, any responses to this question from Daniel about uh, the role of uh, oil interests in Middle East policy? Or yeah, I'd, like Middle to, I'd like to offer one thought on that. And, and I want to go back to a question you raised earlier too and, and put it to Justin, but let me first respond to the question about oil. I think that there... It, in the context of post 9-11 policy, I, I don't think it was a prime driver in decision-making, but I think it was a distorting factor in some cases. So I don't believe the story that some people were arguing for that post 9-11, everything was about getting oil from the Middle East and Iraq was about oil. And I, I don't think that really meshes with the facts. I, mean, I, I think there were other factors that are more explanatory. So let's put that aside. But I think there was a way in which concerns about the flow of oil from the Middle East, which is a valid consideration. It's clearly a value to be able to trade oil with other countries. I think it became a distortion so that America to start with didn't have a coherent conception of its interests in the Middle East. I don't think there's anything like a coherent view. 
And I think that's true regardless of whether it's someone uh, who's Democratic or, or, or Republican sitting in the White House. I think it's a bipartisan problem that there isn't a sort of thoughtful conception of what is in our interests in the Middle East. So the one consequence of that vacuum or that incoherence is that when, when we approach, how do we deal with a country like Saudi Arabia, which is a big question that occupies or should occupy policymakers, oil becomes a factor and it becomes a distorting factor so that instead of thinking about what kind of regime Saudi Arabia is, what its character is morally, how it treats its own people, is it a free country, is it not a free country, to what extent is it a country that we could be have rational relationship, relations with and what does that look like, is it hostile, is it friendly, is it somewhere in between, all kinds of questions that one has to consider and weigh objectively, those are pushed aside on the cons- and, and they're outweighed by this view that whatever else we do, we can't alienate the Saudis because we need their oil. And I think that is, it's, it's a, a symptom of amoral thinking. It's really pushing aside questions of, well, do we really wanna be buying oil from these people given the way they operate? This is a country that is, it's two steps away from ISIS really. I mean, it's, it's not to exaggerate things, but it, it resubjugates women there. It's very strict religious rules. And it's, I mean, a lot of Saudi money, which is a vague question, how, how do you separate Saudi wealth from the, the government, given it's a royal family with many, many scions, a lot of Saudi money has gone into uh, Islamist groups and madrasas and all kinds of efforts to proselytize for their version of Islamic totalitarianism. So there's a real problem here with Saudi Arabia that you can't gloss over. And what we have seen is that the concern about the flow of Saudi oil distorts our thinking so that we don't give those kinds of moral considerations due attention. And I think that is a mistake and it's led to a relationship where the United States still 20 years on and for many decades before viewed Saudi Arabia as an ally. And when you look at the facts, it's nothing like an ally. In fact, you, if you had two columns only, you would not put it in the ally column, you would put it in the hostile column. But of course there are other gradations. I mean, I don't think that's the only way to, to view it. So I think that is a, and I think oil has been a distortive factor that misshapes whatever is fills the vacuum of ourselves in of our interest and our conception of it and i think it's one symptom of not having a, a, a real conception of our interests um, and just let me throw this back on the table i was interested in your question greg about that you posed to pete which was what are some principles that might be relevant for thinking about foreign policy and i was curious to hear if justin has a view uh, or some thoughts to share on that, either in response to what Pete said or just to, of his own kind of perspective on this. Justin? Sure. So there's a lot on the table, and I'd love, I wrote a paper um, last fall arguing for militarily withdrawing from the Middle East. So I have a lot to say about how oil has distorted American views of the Middle East. And um, let me in a roundabout way try to get my arms around everything and squeeze it together and see what sort of squirts out of my arms. Um, So I agree with Elon that amorphous, underspecified views about oil have poisoned American policy in the Middle East. Um, I think I'm not a nationalist and I'm, I'm, I'm a relatively cosmopolitan person, but it really does chafe to see American presidents rattling their cup 
at the Saudis begging for production decisions to go this way or that. An innovation of the Donald Trump presidency is that he was asking the Saudis to produce less, which is a rarity. Normally, we're asking them to produce more. But the Saudis are not as stupid as we would have them be. They make production decisions not in, in deference to American diplomatic goals, but in deference to their own pockets. Um, and American politicians uniquely seem to act as though a certain amount of cajoling can produce uh, variation in Saudi production decisions. And this is nonsense. Uh, and we have a lot of data to show that it's nonsense. Um, and so to expand things a bit, um, from the, the oil security pathologies that afflict uniquely American sort of strategic thinkers, State Department people, Defense Department people. Energy economists don't think this. Not only do they not think that the Saudis will make production decisions based on American pleading, um, they don't think that volatility in energy markets by and large is based on on political disruptions in the Middle East. This is, this is a completely disregarded fringe view among energy economists. Um, and, and that's bad <laughs> that American, you know, guns and bombs and dead people, strategic thinkers dismiss energy economics and don't look at what energy economists attribute volatility in energy markets to. The general consensus among energy economists is that uh, commodity prices tend to track together. Um, and then if you look, for example, at the spikes uh, in the 1970s, we were at a unique point in history where the Western business cycle, the East Asian business cycle were more or less synchronized. Um, and this put severe strain uh, on the production capacity of, of everyone who could produce. And that this was a sort of secular development, that it wasn't obviously a development um, of the OPEC or OPEC um, oil embargo. But because it happened after the oil embargo, we attributed it, uh, the disruption and the gas lines, et cetera, to the oil embargo. So I think that's one pathology that afflicts American policy in the Middle East. The other two pathologies that afflict American policy in the Middle East, and the way that I framed this paper, which was sort of crude, but I didn't know how else to get at it, was that the United States really cares deeply about the Middle East for three main reasons, oil, Israel, and terrorism, right? We worry about these disruptions to energy markets, this idea that political instability or wars between Saudi Arabia and Iran um, could bring the American economy to its knees. And I've sort of tried to deal with that as in as perfunctory a way as I could as I could. We care about Israel. We don't want Israel to be overrun by terrorists or terrorist states or some combination of the two. Um, and we worry about terrorism, especially after September the 11th. Um, but I don't think that a robust on the ground presence, American presence in the Middle East has really redounded to Israel's benefit, right? I mean, it was, I've had the occasion to look back at uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's testimony to the US Congress in either late 2002 or early 2003, um, where he urged the Congress, I guarantee you, uh, if you regime change Saddam Hussein, it will have great positive reverberations throughout the region. This is kind of a bad idea. You know, in retrospect, that was not something that really I think um, Israel is happy about. I think the Israelis would probably like the United States to attack Iran now if it could get that development to happen. 
Um, but but we we just our role in the Middle East has not been a good development to Israel. The main threat to Israel um, is the terror threat, um, partly from within itself and partly from uh, you know the Palestinian Authority. And we could break this way or that way on that. But the the U.S. role in the region is not helping that process forward uh, to the benefit of Israel. And then with respect to terrorism, as I've suggested, I think that the broadly the terrorist threat to the United States has been dramatically overstated. Uh, by American analysts that that enabled these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq to drift on uh, sort of perpetually. Um, but that with the benefit of hindsight, I mean, think about it. if you were putting your 401k in the prospect of a big terrorist attack in the United States today with a five year, 10 year, 15 year, 20 year time horizon, do we really think that's likely? Do we really think that we should base policy on the likelihood of another 9-11 happening over 5, 10, 15, or 20 years? I think probably not. And I will mention, I mentioned him previously, my colleague John Mueller wrote a very provocative article in the National Interest in the fall 2002 issue, with which I vehemently disagreed at the time, entitled Harbinger or Aberration? Question mark, a 9-11 Provocation. And John basically argued that it was an aberration, that it was what he called a tragic blip in the experience of U.S. national security. And I remember reading it back then and thinking, this guy is crazy. And then now, with the benefit of hindsight, I look back and think, if I had had skin in the game and if he had had skin in the game, he would be calling the tune today because he would have all of my money. So I think oil, Israel, and terrorism broadly are the three main reasons that the United States cares about the Middle East. And in the oil case, it's due to uniquely pathological views about energy markets. In the Israel case, it's due to a totally misconstrued conception of how Israel operates in the region. And with respect to the terrorism case, I just think that we have an overstated idea of the threat posed to the United States by uh, Islamic fundamentalists. So I'll probably do best to leave it there. Let me try to thank you for that. Let, let me try to, and that brings us very much back to the big picture. So let me try to, to stay on the big picture um, and see if we can put in, essentialize the difference between your two points of view. One thing that somebody might take away from having heard both of your remarks so far, I don't think this quite perfectly characterizes either of your views, but I think putting it this way might, and having you react to what's wrong with it, might might bring that out. Uh, someone might take your opening remarks to be saying, Alan is saying we didn't do enough, and Justin saying we did too much. And is that right? That is, is it we overestimated the threat and did too much on Justin's side, and we underestimated the threat or we misidentified the threat and so didn't do enough on Alan's side? Or how would each of you revise or uh, improve on that formulation of your positions? If I can jump in, I, I would say uh, we misunderstood the threat and we did the wrong things. Uh, I actually think we could have done less to accomplish our goals. I certainly don't think we needed the war in Iraq. I think Afghanistan was a defensible, and I think at the time I was in favor of it, I think there was good reason to go in and remove the Taliban and eliminate the Al-Qaeda forces. I think that's defensible. I don't think Iraq was. I think it was a mistake, the wrong war. Uh, so in, in the sense that I would say, it's not a question of more sort of the quantity of what you do. It's a question of, do you have a clear conception of what you're trying to do? What, what is the enemy? what or the threat and what is what would be 
reasonable steps to take to eliminate that threat. Um, and then I, let me make one other point of difference. Um, I'm familiar with, with John Mueller's uh, views. I've, I've actually responded to him in another article. I, um, I don't agree with his approach to this, uh, but I do agree that there was an overstatement of the threat. That I think is true. I think if you listen to some of the statements from George W. Bush and for some of the people around him and, and not only people who are Republicans at the time, there are people who are sort of seen as centrists who had the view that so long as Al-Qaeda has a perch in Afghanistan or on the border with Pakistan, this is an existential threat. I don't think that was realistic. What I think happens is that there, when you don't have a clear view of what you're facing, the fear comes in and you, you inflate what you think is a real problem. What I think is the, the difference is that I think, I worry that the perspective that we are hearing from Justin is the kind of perspective we heard from people before 9-11. So, you know, when the 1993 attempt to bring down the Twin Towers happened, only 40 people died only. And I don't mean that to diminish the loss of life, but it was much smaller scale attack, didn't succeed in bringing the towers down. And a prevailing view, and I, and I think, I don't wanna speak for John Mueller, but I, I mean, I take his view to lead to this kind of perspective is it's such a, is this whole idea of it being a blip, it's, it's a, uh, the kind of thing that we don't have to worry too much about in effect. And that is in effect what the Clinton administration did in responding, they treated the 1993 attack as a, uh, uh, criminal justice type issue and not really heeding the, the, the fact that, well, this is a manifestation of something bigger. There's a real movement behind this kind of thing. And it's not primarily understood as terrorism. It's, it's an ideological phenomenon. And yes, we went, we, I think we captured the, the ringleader behind 1993. He's in, he was in jail for a long time. I think he, still, he might still be there, I forget. And some of the people involved in it. And yet you could have said, made the same point in, two, in 1994 saying, well, okay, this, uh, this was an anomaly. Even if they had killed more than 40 people, okay, I get it, you're overstating the threat. But then, then what happens is this cascades and the enemy, which I think is a point we haven't touched on is there is something to be understood about how the enemy is in, encouraged or discouraged by the responses it sees America taking. And I think the response to the 1993 attack and other attacks subsequent to that, if you think about the coal incident in Yemen, if you think about um, uh, the, the sort of the, the string of things that happened, it was not seen as a significant threat. And I, this again, this is not to say this was a, a movement that could bring down the US. I don't think they were able to do that in 2001. I don't think they're able to do that now. So that it's, I don't think the options are it's existential or it's nothing. I think the question is- let me break in then here with a question from one of our, our viewers that relates to this. Um, he asks, what's your evidence that we failed to keep the terrorists threat at a manageable level? That's a quote, so maybe you used that phrase, I don't remember earlier. Um, he says, terrorism only kills one to 50 Americans per year. That's pretty minimal in a country that has 15,000 murders per year. No, question mark. So I take it what he's saying is, uh, okay, um, you don't think it's an existential threat. Um, but you want to say it is a threat or there's some kind of cascade here to worry about. Um, maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but what's the evidence that it's something to worry about on any kind of significant scale as opposed to, say, ordinary crime? Um, given that, uh, at least according to these statistics, terrorism kills an average of one to 50 people, uh, whereas uh, murder, you know, many more are murdered. Um, 
what's the response to the view that we're just we're we're viewing this as too di we're over prioritizing um fighting terrorism fighting this movement even if there is a movement that it might get involved in maybe it's small potatoes relative to what our other priorities should be i think the issue is that this is a i think a a, a necessary part of what the government's role is which is to protect us from foreign threats. And particularly when we have evidence to think this is something that can grow over time. So it might be that the statistics is right, this, these statistics are right, and, and I, don't, I haven't looked at the, them lately, but wouldn't we want to address it so that they don't grow? And maybe, maybe this is the, the level at which we can, so this is what success looks like. I, I'm not saying that it can go to zero because obviously crime can't go to zero and murder can't go to zero. But the point of the police force and the judicial system is to keep those numbers to the lowest they can be and to, to go after the, 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 the drivers behind those. And this is a case now where, where we have the benefit of 20 years worth of, of hindsight. And we have even more decades before 9-11 to see that the reaction uh, of, of appeasement and passivity in the face of this threat causes it to get worse. So I think it's easy to overlook the other attacks that happened after 9-11. Not all of them here, and very few of them were here, which is, is significant, and I think it's a good thing. But so I don't know if people on this call remember the attacks on the Madrid uh, train system in 2004, or the London Underground in 2005, or just zoom forward to 2015 in, in Paris. Now, those people identified with ISIS. This was a, a, a really barbaric attack in the streets of Paris, suicide bombings at a stadium, uh, drilling people with bullets at a concert. So yes, th this is a mass casualty attack. Wouldn't it be better if we didn't have to deal with those sorts of things? And I think we can. Now, let me add one other element, because I think part of the premise of this kind of question is, Surely we can live with this level of threat or this level of casualties. And the, in the background is, because the alternative is another disaster like Iraq or another disaster like Afghanistan. And I agree with you, if, if, that's, if those are your options, certainly I wouldn't endorse going and taking further action because I, I don't want us to have another Iraq, another Afghanistan kind of disaster. But I think it's a mistake to equate the past attempts to deal with this problem with what would be other option, other opportunities and other things that could be more effective and less uh, costly. Uh, and again, I, I think it's important to see that the Iraq and particularly Afghanistan experiences have colored our view of what's possible and what needs to be done. So I think it's, there's a kind of distortion effect happening. Uh, so, and I'm not in favor of, again, it's important to get that I'm not in favor of reproducing those disasters and I don't think they're necessary to succeed. Okay, so I know you've written a lot elsewhere, and, and maybe we'll get uh, for you to tell us later about some of the actions we should have taken. But I want to go to uh, to Justin now with, in effect, that same question, because one of our viewers is saying, uh, I'll just read what he wrote to you. Uh, your indictment of America's reactions after 9-11 are quite broad. What do you think the U.S. should have done to confront the threats revealed by this act of terrorism? So granted that we over, uh, in your view, we overestimated uh, it. Um, what... Uh, what ought President Bush or what ought America to have done on 9-12 and going forward? So that's a really unsatisfying part of being me in this discussion, is that the things that I think were effective, um, hardening cockpit doors, making 
physically capable male passengers on airliners look askance at somebody being a knucklehead near a cockpit door. We're actually quite cheap and not super satisfying politically. Um, so I empathize with people who say, look, if we went into Afghanistan as you wanted us to do in late 2001, disrupted the Taliban, let's say Tora Bora broke the other way, um, broken our favor, uh, and we rounded up and killed more of these people. There's just not a, left, a lot left to do politically by 2002, 2003, right? There's a sort of maintenance capability um, to respond sort of obliquely to Elon. I don't really worry that the United States is going to go to, that my admonitions are going to lead the United States to too low of a level of sensitivity. So John Mueller has his paper out recently where he says, points out accurately that public opinion in terms of the terrorist threat level is way higher than elite opinion still after elites have begun to sort of come off terrorism, to begun to move to China as the great new threat, et cetera, et cetera. Um, public sentiment wants a robust, uh, shouldery sort of uh, response to terrorism. So I have very, very low concerns that, that we or the FBI or the CIA or the NSA are going to lower our guard too much. I think that the needle haystack problem is that we may be collecting too much hay and not focusing on where the needle may be uh, because of this sort of generalized uh, freak out about terrorism. So I'll just, it looks like you have another question. So I'll just probably leave it there. Okay, uh, let me just, um, I know uh, Alon needs to leave and I want to close at the half hour. So do you want to answer the same question? What should we have done? What should have been the central, uh, what's the essence of what a policy response should have been? Part of it, I gather from your earlier remarks, is identifying the movement as this, um, identifying the enemy as this Islamist movement, but then what to do about it? So I've written about this at length for um, in a number of books. The most recent one is called Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism, What Went Wrong After 9-11. I encourage people to uh, explore it if they're interested in the more detailed perspective. And the previous book is called Winning the Unwinnable War. Uh, the more recent one is available for free uh, in PDF, and people can find that if they Google for it with my name. I think the essence of the answer is to take seriously that this is a movement driven by ideas and that has state leadership and that there's state sponsorship and that dealing with these inspirations and financial backers is a necessary condition of demoralizing this movement. So if, if you study the history of the Islamist movement, one of the things that gave it, put it um, a real accelerant was the success of the Iranian regime in two episodes. The first was post the revolution um, in the Iranian uh, hostage crisis, uh, taking American diplomats at the US embassy and holding them captive and humiliating them. And the US capitulated in that confrontation instead of re going after and, and trying to cap, uh, rescue the, the diplomats. And this taught the Iranians a lesson and, and not only the Iranians, but others who were sympathetic to the fact that here was a regime that was trying to implement this vision of an Islamist totalitarian approach. And they succeeded in humbling and humiliating America. And I think that was a, a galvanizing moment for other Islamists, whether they're Shiite or, or Sunni, it didn't really matter fundamentally. I think the second, uh, there are a number of episodes that were further galvanizing that happened in America's weak and, and appeasing response. 
understanding that trajectory and how it galvanizes the movement to the point where they go from okay. uh, taking hostages to taking uh, to, to could I just break in with the question so what you're you're summarizing how things went bad and how the movement was emboldened and progressed yeah but what I just like a, a kind of headline or the kind of simple sure. version of the answer uh, from is uh, okay so we, we needed to do something about that we needed to attack the state sponsors and the funders but not in the way, not in something that looked like the Afghanistan or Iraq war so what what's the top line of what what would attacking those sources have looked like okay so my reason in mentioning those is to illustrate is to emphasize the power the part of this which is not understood which is the galvanizing and demoralizing valences that you can get with certain responses the top line is I think you would have to focus on the, the regimes that see themselves as the leaders of this movement. So, the, and I think the, the primary ones are Saudi Arabia and Iran. And I don't think it means you launch a war to nation build in Iran or, or Saudi Arabia. I don't think it even needs to be a war. I think there is enough here to coerce them into capitulating by a show of real moral confidence that they're wrong, denouncing them, denouncing all those who follow them. And then in addition, obviously regimes like the Taliban had to be eliminated. And anyone who harbors ISIS or, or enables ISIS uh, and other groups like them, I think that's the essential. It's going after these um, en enablers and sponsors and inspiration points. And that's that's as much as the headline as I'm willing to offer. Okay, thank you. And uh, thank you to Justin and earlier to uh, Peter for um, sharing your thoughts today. Uh, a sad anniversary uh, coming up tomorrow. And uh, we hope people will also uh, join some of the Salem Center personnel uh, uh, next, I think it's Tuesday when we're going to be also looking back on 9-11, this time with an eye to how it's impacted uh, American policy generally, not just foreign policy, but how we think about ourselves as a nation and what its, what its uh, footprint has been in our past. I want to thank uh, both of our panelists again and wish you all a, a good weekend and um, a reflective uh, anniversary.